Please remain standing for our third lesson and sermon text. It's from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Again, give your ear to God's infallible word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and, all, and they shall all prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gift of your spirit, for we could not understand your word rightly without him. And so, Father, we pray that you would be present in us and with us by your spirit today as we contemplate your word, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Acts 2 records for us one of the most glorious events in the history of the church. Indeed, it is one of the most important events in all of human history. Namely, it, is, it records for us the outpouring of Christ's Spirit upon his people on the day of Pentecost. And the events on that day of Pentecost as the Spirit was given to the church were incredible. There was a manifestation of fire. There were thunderous sounds and noises. There was preaching. There was prophecy. 
that something notable was happening was evident to everybody. We just read that as, as people heard the amazing ev- events and the sounds happening, they came together because they knew that God was doing something significant. And yet, they did not know what that significant thing that God was doing was. As they came together and saw everything that was happening, they said to one another, what does this mean? What does the fire mean? What does this sound like a train mean? What is all of this preaching and this prophesying? God is doing something, but what is he doing? And for modern Christians, even, even with the, uh, the whole Bible and the whole canon in front of us, Pentecost can, can be very similar for us as well. We know that God did and is doing something very significant. There's fire and there's preaching and there's prophesying and there's, and there's incredible sound. And yet, we know the Spirit was given, but what does it mean? What's the import for us in the day of Pentecost? Pentecost is actually very, very significant for you and for me. It marks a great shift in God's dealings with his people. In short, the Pentecost, the events here recorded for us in Pentecost, show the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on God's people for the ingathering of his worldwide church before the great and awesome day of the Lord. I'll say that again. Pentecost is about about the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people for the ingathering of his worldwide church before the awesome day of the Lord. For those of you that do outlines or keep score at home, that's the sections that we're going to walk through. The outpouring of the Spirit, the ingathering of the church, and the awesome day of the Lord. Let's walk through the text and see how Peter tells us this is the import of all of the things that are happening. First, the outpouring of God's Spirit on God's people. That's verses 1 through 4. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus sent the apostles into Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, saying that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is sort of the table of contents for the book of Acts. This is the programmatic statement. As you trace the narrative of Acts, it's going to begin in Jerusalem and go to Judea and then to Samaria, and then it will end with Paul and, uh, in Rome at the very ends of the earth. And it is about God's people bearing witness to Christ in all of these places. So in Acts 2, we're seeing the beginning of this program unfold as the Spirit of God is poured out on his people at Pentecost. Now we have to ask, is there anything, is there anything important or significant about the fact that Jesus gave the spirit that he promised his disciples on the day of Pentecost? I mean, why, why didn't Jesus give them the spirit immediately when he ascended? Or why not 10 days before Pentecost or seven days after? Is there something significant that Luke is telling us by telling us that the spirit came on the day of Pentecost? In fact, there, there is. We associate Pentecost with the giving of the spirit to the church. But the Jews in Jesus' day and in, 
in the early church times associated Pentecost with the giving of the law. Pentecost itself was one of the three great feasts that every Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Pentecost simply means 50. Pen, pent, five, 50. Pentecost. And it's celebrated 50 days after the Sabbath of the Passover. And originally, Pentecost was given to uh, commemorate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. That was, that was the original person who was original reason that it was given was to celebrate the wheat harvest. But over time, the Jews came to regard Pentecost as the anniversary of the giving of the Old Covenant law at Mount Sinai. And if you go read through the book of Exodus, and you read through when the original Passover happened, and you track Israel and their journey, you'll find that um, even though the exact date is given, it is right around 50 days after they leave, that they come to Mount Sinai and God manifests himself to them and gives them the Old Covenant. And so the reason it's significant that Luke points out this happened on Pentecost is because there's a number of phenomena that Israel experienced at Sinai that the disciples and the crowd gathered experienced at Pentecost. Just like uh, Israel came together at the foot of the mountain uh, to meet with God and get the covenant from him. Here in Acts 2, we have Jews gathering around a house, gathering around God's presence to receive a covenant from him as well. And, and many of the same symbols at Sinai are also here at Pentecost. For example, there's the violent wind, as we might literally render that um, from the Greek. It's, it's a mighty rushing wind. It's a violent noise. There were not trains in those days, but if there were trains, uh, everyone would think that one had just come through the house. It's trying to, uh, to show that it's a sound enough to shake the building that you're in. And throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God's Spirit is represented by a mighty wind. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for wind also mean spirit. And it's only in context that we know whether or not an author's talking about uh, wind or if, God's, or if he's talking about God's spirit or someone's breath. We might think of uh, God appearing to Elijah in the whirlwind or appearing to Job in the whirlwind. Or in Exodus 14, as Israel gets ready to cross the Red Sea, we read that a mighty wind uh, was present to split the sea and be in, in their presence as they crossed the Red Sea. And so the audience on Pentecost probably readily connected the sound of this mighty wind to the thunder and the trumpet that God's people experienced at Pentecost in the giving of the Ten Commandments. This loud wind is also what gathered everybody together, just like that day at Sinai many, many years before. In addition to the rushing wind, Luke tells us that there were also tongues of fire, verse 3. And fire was yet another symbol of the divine presence. You can think that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Israel was led by a pillar of fire throughout the desert. Fire fell, on fell from heaven on the sacrifices in the institution of the tabernacle and the temple. God's fire consumed Nadab and Abihu when they offered incense wrongly before the Lord. Fire brings both heat 
and light. The heat of fire purifies or consumes whatever it comes in contact with. We are to have a reverent fear of God, the author of Hebrews tells us, because our God is a consuming fire. And this fire comes down in the day of Pentecost on God's people. And so the two signs, the wind and the fire, were the outward demonstrations of what was happening inside the disciples. It says that all of them, in verse 4, were filled with the Holy Spirit. God's presence was upon them and in them. This is what has happened in all of God's habitations throughout throughout the scriptures when his spirit comes to dwell in a place. There is a manifestation of his glory showing that his spirit is there. In each of those instances, though, when God had taken up residence in a place, people were prevented from entering. People were prevented from getting close. The two examples uh, that, that we might most think of are when God's glory, his fire comes down on the tabernacle in the wilderness. It says that not even Moses himself could enter to minister in the initial falling of God's fire because the, the presence uh, was so intense. Same thing when uh, the temple is, is dedicated. The priests initially could not enter to minister because God's presence was so intense. As Moses uh, approaches God in the burning bush, he tells them, do not come any closer. Every time God's presence and his fire comes, uh, people are prevented from getting to close to him. But the amazing thing about Pentecost is that when the fire of God comes and rests, it says, on each one, the people themselves, it says in verse 4, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost means that God has come to take up residence in his people in a profound way, in a way that did not happen under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the various dwelling places of God were consecrated with blood, and then ministry and fellowship with God could occur in that place. But Jesus Christ, when he shed his own blood on the cross as a true sacrifice for us and ascended into heaven as the true high priest, he decisively cleansed and consecrated God's people so that his spirit could come and indwell you to live and to be in you in you in the people around you as you look around this is the place where fellowship with God and ministry to God may be done in the new covenant rather than a geographic place the new covenant is in the very people of God that fellowship with God and ministry to him take place i don't think we often grasp the great privileges that we have living in the new covenant this is the fulfillment of all of the longing of our old covenant brethren that god would come and indwell his people all throughout the scriptures as you read in the prophets god foretold of a time when he would make the hearts of his people knew. We might think of Jeremiah or Ezekiel where he promised to give his people a heart of flesh. We might think of Deuteronomy where God tells his people that he has not yet given them a heart to understand the word. We might think of 
uh, the prophecy in Ezekiel as he looks out over the valley of dry bones representing God's people and God's spirit begins to move as a wind and brings them to life and reconstitutes them as a people of God. This is what God's people have always longed for. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. It's what you live in today. Paul tells us in Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. God's people have never been able to keep God's commands in a way that please him. We talked about that just a few minutes ago. But Pentecost is the fulfillment of that time where God has come to indwell his people in order that his law might be fulfilled from the heart by faith in Jesus in you and me. If you believe in Jesus, if you belong to him, this is true of you. God is working his righteousness in you and through you. It's an amazing thing. And the corollary truth to this is since we are a people that are formed by God's spirit, we are to be a people who are dependent upon God's spirit. That's what Jesus tells the apostles in the opening chapter of Acts where he sends them to Jerusalem to wait. He says, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are to be people, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, who keep in step with the Spirit. And this is not always the case for us. So we don't always keep in step with the Spirit and rely on Him as we should. Here in, here in the West, here in America, where things uh, are, are comfortable and we have many resources, it can be very easy uh, to rely on money or techniques or programs in order to uh, see a discipleship happen in the church or see the gospel uh, advance in our town. We can rely on things other than the power of the Holy Spirit and seem to get by for a time because everything's put together and we're comfortable. In our personal lives, we don't always rely on the Spirit. And we know that we're not when we live in fleshly ways, when there's bitterness or anger or we're unable to control our tongues or our appetites. But I think a lack of relying on the Spirit manifests itself most in prayerlessness. I think a lack of not relying on the Spirit manifests itself most in a prayerless person or a prayerless church. Because the person who does not pray does not feel that they need God. They, they don't believe that they need God to act. As Jesus sends the disciples away to wait for the Holy Spirit, they gather together and they pray. They pray, waiting expectantly for 10 days before the Spirit comes. When you or I believe that we can get by on our own talents, our own merits, 
our own techniques, we will be people without prayer. And we will vacillate between attitudes of sort of prideful optimism on the one hand and sort of despair on the other. If you try to go through life without relying on God, you will oscillate back and forth between a proud optimism and a despair. And the reason is because when things are going well and when what you're doing seems to work, you will be saying to yourself, I can do it. I can do it. We can do this. We can make this happen. We can make the ministry that I think needs to happen, happen. Or I have the funding. I have the resources. I can make this happen. There's a prideful optimism. But on the other hand, when things aren't working, and it seems like all of your money, all of your techniques uh, have no effect, you will despair and you'll say to yourself, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is impossible. But in both of those instances, I want you to notice that you're saying, that we are saying, I. I can do this. I can't do this. The prayerful, independent Christian, the prayerful, independent church is one that says, God can do this through me. God can do this through us. Can we raise and disciple our own kids to fear the Lord? No, not in our own strength. We can't. You can't make things turn out the way that you want them to. Can our church reach the, reach the city and convert people to the Lord? No, we can't, not on our own. But these are things that God can and does do in and through his people. A prayerful person, a dependent person on the Spirit says, these are God's promises, and I'm stepping out in faith because God can do this through me. I read a pastor who recently said that the constant prayer that's enjoined upon us in the New Testament is not so much a matter of personal discipline as it is poverty of spirit. He said that the constant prayer enjoined upon us by the New Testament is not so much a matter of personal discipline, of gritting your teeth and making sure that you've done it. And, and we just talked about in Sunday school, you should have regular time for prayer. You should. You should it should be scheduled. All right? But um, your willpower alone will, is not enough to do that. But someone who is a, has poverty of spirit, who knows that the things in front of them are impossible, is the person who will have recourse to prayer just like the apostles did. As they gathered and waited, they knew that the transformation of the world that Jesus had given them as a commission was not possible without the resources of God. And so, friends, the application for this is is obvious. We must, as a people, as Christians, individuals, as a church, we must depend on the Spirit. The commission that God has given us to disciple the nations is far beyond our resources in and of ourselves, but with God working in us and through us, he can do it. And so I talked about this in, um, in Sunday school, so if you were there, you've, ar- you've already got a head start, but let me just get really specific with you about depending on the Spirit is, is becoming a person devoted to prayer. And what I, what I would suggest you do is you take uh, people in your family, in the church, and someone outside of the church, and you get yourself a journal or an index card um, or some other way of recording, and write that person's name down, um, 
write down a verse, a scripture that applies to them and some prayer points for them and begin to pray for them regularly. Just pick a couple of people, two to three people, day in and day out. Uh, discipline yourself to become a person who's dependent on the Lord, working in the lives of your family, of your church members, and in our ministries. So I said there were, I think I said there were three, um, three things that happened at Pentecost there. One was the mighty rushing wind. One was the fire. The third manifestation of the Spirit was that the disciples began to speak in other languages or other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, it says. And this shows that the Spirit was given, our second heading here, for the ingathering of God's worldwide church. The Spirit was given for the ingathering of God's worldwide church, as it says, beginning in verse number 6. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled and said to one another, Look, are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? One of my favorite things about that little passage is that it says they were confused because they understood. They're like, I don't understand. How do I understand what you're saying? <laughs> Wait, why, why can I understand what you're saying? It, remind, it reminded me of a time uh, when I was doing uh, landscaping work and our crew was out uh, working on a lawn and a, and a guy pulled up. Some of you have heard this story before. But a guy pulled up and he came up to me and um, I guess because of the work I was doing and the way that I look, he said, English? English? Do you, you have any English? And I was like, oh man, yeah, I've got a degree in English. Like, <laughs> you know? And, and the look on his face, I imagine, was something like the, the guys in Acts 2. He's like, how do I understand what you're saying? This, this is amazing. Um, I actually uh, messed with him the next week. He was out working in his flower beds, and I came up and said, I've been working on my English, <laughs> you know? Um, it, it, was understandable. it was an understandable mistake. Um, but, that, but that simple Galileans, which was a place that was not known for its intellectual Heritage, all right? Galilee, in fact, would have been thought of as a backwater kind of place in those days. That people from Galilee could have sun skill in all of the languages of the known world at that time was, was incredible. And the supernatural aspect of this is not lost on the people, and they're utterly amazed, it says in verse 7. But again, we ask ourselves this question, why did the Spirit have them speaking in Tons of local languages. I mean, the basic purpose of the miracle was not simply to communicate the wonderful works of God or to communicate the gospel to people because if it was simply to get the word out, then they could have spoken Greek or Aramaic, right? All of the, uh, the Jews that lived in Judea would have known Hebrew or Aramaic and then all of the ones from the dispersion that we read about from Egypt and Pamphylia and all these other places, they, they would have used Greek as a trade language. So they could have simply... Um, been all been preaching in Greek and everyone could have understood what they were saying. The Holy Spirit didn't need to inspire them to be able to preach in the mother tongue of all these people. So why did he do it? Well, again, in the Old Testament, the coming of the Holy Spirit was tied up with the Messiah regathering and saving Israel. You notice that's, who's, that's who Peter is addressing. He says, 
he's talking to people in Judea. He says there, there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from all over. And that was one of the promises of the Old Testament was that uh, God would regather and save Israel. Um, what, for example, one of the passages that speak about this in Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel and one king shall be over them all. That's from Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. This is part of the promise that God's old covenant people looked forward to. And in Acts 2, Luke is going out of his way to show us that these prophecies in the Old Testament, like that one, were being fulfilled. But one of the biggest uh, problems with trying to restore Israel was that they were in exile. At the close of the Old Testament, um, they're taken into different countries. And at this point, we read about they're dispersed all over the face of the world. But prophets like Ezekiel promised that God would still be able to gather Jews from around the world and save them by his spirit. And here in Acts, we get a foretaste of that saving action by God as Israelites from all over the world are hearing the message of the new covenant. And yet, at the same time, this roadmap that was laid out for us in the beginning of Acts, in in Acts 1-8, for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is also being fulfilled. By giving those gathered at Pentecost the ability to speak many languages, God signaled his purpose to gather Israel from around the world and also to incorporate Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation into his people. The good news, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's just an interesting construction. It's not to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see uh, a similar thing happening here in, in Acts 2 as um, proselytes and Jews together from around the world are being incorporated and saved by God by the power of his spirit. He gives us the the big list of nations because these are the people that God wants to reach. And the people that God wants to reach through his church, as it says in verse 5, is every nation under heaven. That's why the the different languages were used. And so let me me just take uh, one moment and address a common question here that's probably come up in your minds, or if it hasn't in the course of the sermon, You've probably been asked it by a friend, and that's whether this ability to speak in other languages, speak in other tongues, is the sign uh, that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, must every church and, and must every Christian speak in other tongues? Is, that, um, is what happens in Acts 2 programmatic for, for the whole church? And the short answer to that question is no. In the book of Acts, as, as you continue to read along, believers are filled with the Holy Spirit Uh, multiple times, many times. And the manifestations of the Spirit that happen differ from time to time. Sometimes the believers do speak in other languages, especially as we hit those mile markers, as we move into uh, Judea, as we move into Samaria, as we move into the Gentile world. um, That sign of tongues does link the church together. But there are other times where the Spirit 
is poured out uh, where people are filled with the Spirit and completely different phenomena happen. So for example, in Acts 4, Acts 4.31, it says, and they, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Okay, that's just one example uh, that we'll stop off in. But you'll see as you read through, um, just as, as Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit continually, the manifestations that take place when that happens aren't always the same. And so we shouldn't take one aspect of them and sort of universalize it. When the Spirit falls on a person, it's not always that they speak in other languages. And it's not always that there's fire or a, or a mighty rushing wind or an earthquake or these different things that happen. Um, but what does happen consistently throughout the Scriptures, not just in Acts, but throughout the Scriptures, when someone is filled with the Spirit, is that they proclaim God's Word boldly and their lives are transformed. We can read that even in the, the epistles as Paul encourages us to be filled constantly with the Spirit in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the outpouring of that is singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's the word of God coming out of us and edifying one another, just like we see here in Acts 2. And that's something that is consistent. Um, the Spirit moves however he wants to. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And so we can't bottle him up and, and make, his, um, make his appearance a universal, a universal thing. The point that Luke is getting at is that the primary reason that God's given us the Spirit is for ingathering, the ingathering of the worldwide church. And so for us, we need to remember that our purpose as the Lord's church is not our own prerogatives or our own comforts, but that God has given the Spirit to see the fulfillment of that picture in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, where people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are worshiping before Jesus, um, singing praises to him for the blood that he shed on their behalf. Our purpose is to make him known. And so as a church, I just, I want to commend you because I know that that is the heart of us. It's the heart of so many of you. Um, I have seen how many of you have welcomed our friends from the Congo and given of your time and your resources uh, to reach out uh, to them and to, to make their ability to come and to worship with us possible. And I've seen how um, so many of you participate in the Afghan hangout that happens every Wednesday. And I just want to encourage you that, that the women who go there and, and meet with our people, with our women, and also with one another are um, opening up to one another. And they're beginning to tell each other stories of, of, of why they had to come to the United States and, and to be more personal. And that's, that's grounds that has to happen for them to be open to hearing the gospel. And God is doing that in you and through you. And so like Paul says to the Thessalonians, I just encourage you to do it more and more. Um, pray more and more. Meditate on Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 more and more um, until uh, that desire of the Spirit to see all peoples worshiping God is just something that is controlling your heart and, and your mind. Um, if you're going to do the, the prayer card or the prayer list, maybe make one of, one of your prayers for the persecuted church around the world or for uh, an evangelistic ministry here in town or around the world as well. And so finally, we see that this ingathering 
is in the last days before the Lord returns in judgment, as Peter says in verse 14. And beginning in verse 14, he says, uh, He stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verse 13, uh, in verse 12, rather, they, the, the crowd asks what, what's going on. In verse 13, some wisecracks gave an explanation. They said these guys are drunk with new wine. They, they were filled with new wine, but it was the wine of the Spirit. And that's what Peter tells them. He says, it's only nine in the morning. The third hour is nine in the morning. These are not drunk. Instead, he references Joel to say that these men are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about this section is that Peter doesn't merely quote Joel. He also interprets Joel. The, the Greek version of Joel 2 that Peter quotes says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. However, Peter interprets this temporal marker afterward when he quotes Joel to the crowd and he says, it shall come to pass in the last days that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. In other words, Peter is grounding the events of Pentecost at a specific time in history as a part of the end times or the eschaton, um, the last days of God's program of redemption. What Peter is saying is that all of these promises that the Jews, that God's old covenant people had looked forward to for thousands of years, the resurrection of the dead, the giving of new hearts, the fulfilling of the law in God's people, the outpouring of the Spirit, the gathering of Israel, we're all breaking into the middle of history here at Pentecost. And so in a way, he's saying, we are here living in the last days. He was saying, as one commentator said, for generations you've dreamed of the day of God, the day when God would break into history. And now in Jesus, that day has come. And so many of the parts of Joel's prophecy we can already see fulfilled. When the sun is darkened, he perhaps is thinking of Jesus' crucifixion where the sun was darkened. The signs in the earth beneath might be Jesus' miracles or even the miracles that are worked through the apostles themselves. And so what Peter is saying is that the last days have come upon us and God is fulfilling all of his promises to you. But that also means that the day of the Lord, historically speaking, is just around the corner. He did not give them a, a, a definite time when this great day would happen, but we see all throughout the Old Testament that the prophets prophesied of this great day of the Lord. And there were events throughout history that prefigured it. Um, catastrophes. We talked about the, the destruction of Jerusalem or famine, and that this would be the day when God would come and judge his people and judge 
the world with equity. That God would come and lay, lay bare all the secrets of the hearts of men and give, as Paul says, uh, each one according to his works. And so all of the good news that Peter prophesies and, and gives to the assembled people are in this backdrop of the Lord coming in judgment. And so with a tone of urgency, he, he urges them, now is the time to call on the name of the Lord and to be saved before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so I will tell you, if, if you're here and you have not called on, on the Lord, who is this Lord that Peter is talking about? It's, it's Jesus. <laughs> he'll, he'll go into it further in the next uh, part that we'll see next week as he preaches. But Jesus is the Lord whom God has sent uh, to turn the hearts of his people back to God, to give the Holy Spirit, to forgive our sins. He is the one who will sit on the throne in the day of judgment, uh, rendering to each one according to his works. And now that we are in these last days, the, the scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus is raised from the dead. The spirit is outpoured. If, if you do not yet belong to Jesus, Peter's message is for you. Call on the name of the Lord, forsaking your sins and trusting in him and be saved. Friends, this is the meaning of Pentecost, that God has come and he's poured out his spirit on us, his people, to ingather his church from around the world before that great and awesome day when he returns to be glorified in his people and to render to each one according to his work. This is what Pentecost means. And so rejoice in the privileges that you have as, as those who are indwelt by God, in you, by, by the Spirit of God. You can have fellowship with God and do ministry in and among the body. You are now the temple of God. Rejoice in that. Be dependent upon the Spirit. Begin to pray. Pray for all people. Pray for all things. Have that poverty of spirit that will drive you to the Lord. And look in expectant hope. Historically speaking, the coming of Jesus is soon. And so know that Jesus is coming to render to each one according to his work, to reward those um, who have trusted in him and have worked out their salvation by faith. This is what Pentecost means. May God bless you. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are that you have poured out your spirit in us, your people. And we do pray, Lord, that we would be dependent upon you, that we would rest in your power and in your goodness. And we pray that you would change our hearts so that we would desire you more and more, that we would desire to see your son Jesus glorified around this world, that you would work in us and through us to that end, that you would edify us by your presence. We thank you for your word today, Lord, and we pray that you would make it active in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.